Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. We are on our uh, 10 to 15,000 foot altitude kind of study of the book of Matthew. Uh, We're taking larger chunks of text. Uh, Today we're taking chapter four. Next Sunday we're gonna be taking chapter five, six, and seven all together. Uh, Know that Matthew's intent, as he is the human writer being moved along by the Spirit of God, is his intent is to uh, selectively and strategically, uh, he's moving his readers along somewhere. And so this series, as I've talked about in this, is this is a bigger, higher altitude view because I want us to see someone in the text that Matthew is taking us. Matthew is taking us on a journey through the text to, to kind of pull things together. And sometimes all of our chapter breaks and our, all of our headings just makes it seem much more like a, a basket of chicken nuggets than it is a moving of the word of God and and moving the reader through things. In chapter one, it's been about see the human lineage, the line of David, the covenant line of Abraham, Uh, then see the divine lineage, that uh, this is not just a telling about some another person who had a special background, but this is someone with a divine lineage. Chapter three is about see the arrival after 400 years of God's silence with his people between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A voice of one crying in the wilderness shows up to prepare the way for the Lord. John shows up. And then all of a sudden in that, the Lord arrives. And today here we are in chapter four, and the one that arrived, now we see him enter. We see him enter the wilderness, and we see him enter, if you want to call it, public ministry. I'm telling you, friends, this is where it gets moving. This is where, at this point in time, where it's like on the edge of your seat, just enthralled with what's going on with things. And so here we go. Verses 1 through 12, the gospel enters the wilderness. The dragon goes in for the kill. Here's, uh, let's take a look at it. We've already read through it. Question. Verse 1. Uh, Who leads Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit of God. By the way, the Spirit of God, we were just seeing, talking about in the chapter before, at the end of that, is telling that the Spirit descends upon Jesus at the baptism. Uh, The Spirit descends on him, and then he is sending him out into the desert. Why? Why is he going out in the desert? And it tells us to be tempted by the devil. I'm telling you, it doesn't get more intense than this. Uh, The second person of the Trinity... Jesus Christ, all alone in the desert with Satan. Boom, 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 boom. Here we go, friends. It is like game on. And remember, when uh, Annie Nacelli was here, he was reminding us that this this is not an equal duo. This is not an equal fight. This is the Colossians 1, Revelation 1, Revelation 5, Revelation 19 1. This is the creator of all things. All things are for his glory. All things are made by him, for him. This is the one, and that means including having made this one. And this fallen angel is now coming to meet uh, the divine one in the flesh. 
And so we come together in this. And know this, God is not tempting in this. James 1 says, 1.13 says that God does not tempt. So this is not God is tempting, the Father is tempting Jesus. That is not what is happening here. This is essentially, if you follow the flow of the movement of Matthew, line of David, covenant line of Abraham, divine lineage, uh, the one preparing the way, he's now baptized, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends, he's sent out into the wilderness, and, and now here what we are finding is that this is a, the, the human reality of the second person of the Trinity is now all of this is being tested. It's a 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, it's a James 1, uh, 2 through 4 that talks about count it all joy when you experience trials of many kinds because they mature you, they prove things in you. And God does allow us to be tempted, but God does not tempt. It is a Job chapter 1 reality in what's going on here. And so uh, he goes out, and note what happens here. Satan is all about this opportunity. He has three plays. Let's kind of keep it in the football, although football went bad yesterday. All right, Satan has three plays, or three tests. Test number one is a serve-self test. A serve-self test. Test. Look at verse 3. Uh, kind of, I can say in my own words, it's like Satan is at Christ. After 40 days, he's in starving Marvin stage. Um, and, and in this, he comes up and he says, If you are who you think you are, prove it. By the way, if you are the Son of God, then command. Use your divine magic power thing that you have. Do some divine hocus pocus kind of stuff. Here's what's going on. Yield yourself to yourself just this one time. Come on, you're hungry, man. Use your power stuff and yield what you have. Don't yield to what the Father has for you. Just yield to yourself just one time, man. But I'm gonna tell you, does this not sound like the Garden of Eden? By the way, you look pretty hungry. This would really be nice for you. <laughs> what a joke. It almost sounds like Satan's trying to help Jesus. Just like he tried to help Adam and Eve. But the fact is, what's going on here, is Satan is totally trying to under, undermine the commitment of Christ to the Father's will. Last week, chapter 3, uh, John is like, no, I should be, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Together we're doing this to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the Father's will in this. This is the, all, all of it, you, you know some of the rest of the story. In Gethsemane, Gethsemane, it's like, no, I submit to the Father, I yield to the Father's will. And here Satan is trying to get his little creepy self in between that. He's trying to separate that out, yield yourself to yourself. Jesus knows this. I'll tell you, what's going on in Satan's mind is really intriguing, but what's going on in Jesus' mind is far more intriguing. Look at verse 4, his response. Man, which is a very intriguing statement for him to be saying. Second person of the Trinity in the flesh as our perfect representative. Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, man shall not do life by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Folks, that's what life is about. 
I don't know about you, but I struggle to do life for what I want. Do you struggle with that? Do you? Okay, good. Well, not good, but it makes me feel better. <laughs> the core issue of life is who do we yield life to? Is life about me? Is life about you? Or is life about placing ourselves under the authority and under the will of our God? That's the issue. And that's the battle, by the way. It's not what I want. It's what the Lord says. That's why even I love here in all of these, as you probably know, if you're familiar with this text, is every time uh, uh, Jesus in the flesh uses the written word of God, he doesn't make it up, he doesn't add to, he uses the written word of God to declare what truth is. It's not what I think, it's not what I've heard, it's what God has written. Every time, it is written. Verse 6, it is written. Verse 7, it is written. Verse 10, it is written. That is just what an example for us. By the way, Adam and Eve failed the serve self test. Satan is kind of like, come on, just a treat for yourself. You deserve it. In fact, God's kind of holding out on you a little bit. And doing this will even make your life even better. They bid it. But what they could not do in a perfect environment, our Lord, our perfect representative, did in the wilderness, starving Marvin. And he did perfectly. Friends, this is the kind of thing where we should, in our own souls, just be going, yeah, man, that's my Savior. Going head-to-head, toe-to-toe with it. Starving in the wilderness, all alone. After all, who will know? Test number two, a test God test. Test number one, a serve self test. Test number two, a test God test. Look at verse five. Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. That's really interesting. The pinnacle, put, they're up there on the pinnacle of the temple. There they are, uh, representing their feet, are standing on where God's glory resides on earth, if you will. The center place of it all. Why there? Because of what Satan is now presenting out on the case on the table. And verse 6, essentially he's kind of like, hey, if you are the son of God, by the way, that is never a denial of it. Nowhere in here does Jesus ever say, see, I proved you are not. He's pushing buttons here. If you are the son of God, then prove your importance by stepping off and make the father, force the father to step in and miraculously save you in such a way. The end of verse six, that statement there from the Old Testament, it it essentially means such that you won't even stub your toe. Listen, I placed you where the Shekinah glory of God is. Let's kind of term it that way. And and all all you do is just step off, and by stepping off, that will force God, right? Because God's presence is clearly for sure here. Just step off and make the Father step out and save you so you don't even stub your toe. Listen, if you are proven. Jesus' response 
clarifies that this is a test God test. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, I don't think this is talking about don't put me, Jesus, to the test. I think he is saying don't put the Father to the test. Because he steps off and he makes the Father forced to do something. Let me just say, I'm telling you, this is playing with God. It's interesting with these first two tests. These are so what you and I war with. Every day, every week, all the time. Test number one, the the tendency to use God to serve our self-perceived needs. I mean, just think about it, our serving self-prayers. Dear Lord, make my life, if we were just to cut to the chase, make my life better, more comfortable, and more prosperous. True? Oh, by the way, and then then we, we feel better about ourselves when it's like, and make everybody else's life more comfortable, more prosperous, and without pain. Nothing is wrong with praying, any of that. But when that is what we are about, we have a problem. It's self-serving, our self-serving thinking. God says he's good and loving, but how is he that now? I mean, I'm starving. I'm starving for some cash. I'm starving for some relationship, for some direction, for some peace, for some bread. Test number one, we totally get it. Test number two, we totally get it. Oftentimes we do life in ways that foolishly test God. I'm going to be careful with that, that foolishly test God. There is a difference between acting in faith and acting in foolishness. There is a difference between God uh, trusting and God testing in foolishness. By the way, just so you know, the whole fleece thing with Gideon in the Old Testament, do you realize that that was not a faith thing? That was actually a lack of faith thing. God had already communicated again and again to Gideon what was the scoop up, and then the fleece thing. And nowadays, sometimes it's kind of viewed that the fleece thing is a real active, that's what a real faithful person does. Go back to the text and take a look. That's actually what a, a person struggling in faith looks like. kind of the whole idea of, God, I'm interested in you, but first prove yourself to me, and then I'll be in. Romans chapter 1. What more does God have to do? I mean, just look around. Seriously? There is no God? And by the way, just consider life. We just live and die, and that's it? Listen, friends, I cannot buy that. There's just something within me and something within you that there's more. Oh, and then the whole TV thing. Send in your seed gift. Hey, listen, friends, God is not some spiritual ATM. Listen, that's testing God in foolishness. Those are self-serving. That's what broken, self-serving people tend to do. And Satan knows about that and knows our tendency toward it, and he plays it with us. But Scripture-saturated people Scripture equipped people know what God's word says. Scripture saturated, scripture equipped people know what God's word says and who God is and who we are and who Satan is and what life is about and 
how to, to go about doing life. And in that, we then preach biblical truth to ourselves. No, it is written. It is written. It is written. And I'm intense about this because in some ways, because of my career, as I look around and as a believer in Christ, and I look around and I'm just so saddened today that so many churches just don't even go into God's word in any kind of depth. And it's like we start with a verse and then we're off running to talk about what we want to talk about. No, this is God's word. It is written. It is written. It is written. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's why we are committed to this. And if we ever get uncommitted to this, shut the doors. All, all in favor, aye? Okay? This is what we're going through because this is God's word, not a self-help book. I'm intent on that. I'm intense on that. And by the way, that's not just a church, that's people. If you're in a place in your life, I, I love, say this lovingly, uh, I say it, if it's like, man, I just really don't know God's word, then, then it's time to. Sundays are the time of the fuel to fuel you into God's word and thrust you out in God's word so that you would do life in God's word. If this is your only feast of the week, there's no saturated scripture going on. By the way, Satan knows scripture. In fact, he quotes it out of context. You can go back and you can do some of the study on it. Using scripture in incorrect ways is not the kind of thing that the Lord wants us to do. By the way, just so everybody knows, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, is not saying you can do anything you want, anytime you want, whatever you want, that you'll be able to win the football game, that you'll be able to run the 100-yard dash in two seconds. It is not saying that. Well, what is it saying? Go look. Look in the context. Let me put it this way. You can do all things that God has asked you to do in Christ. This is a, this is a call, Philippians 4, I'm getting off. I'm getting off track. This is a call that all of God's people can follow God's words and God's calls particularly in the context of Philippians chapter 4. You can do this. I gotta move on. Self-serve test, a test God test, an exalt Satan test. <laughs> test number three. <laughs> so the dragon's not getting very much accomplished. And uh, so when all else fails, just go straight to it, Right? Hey, if you are who you say you are, fall down and worship me. Like, let's just cut to the chase. But notice that it's kind of wrapped in, you'll get something out of this. Hey, listen, here we are in the mountain overlooking 
all of the things and, and, and I'll get all the kingdoms and their glory. I'll give them to you. Oh man, we could spend so much time out there. There's so much theology in that with what's going on. Yes, for a season, the, the God has allowed Satan to have a realm of reign for a period of time and during redemptive history of which we're in. And so yes, there's an aspect he can't give. But do you understand? This is a created fallen angel that is presenting to the Colossians one that created all things and is over all things presenting to him the kingdoms. Listen, this, here, here's what I've got written down. Newsflash, sin is surrounded and stupid. <laughs> sin is surrounded and stupid. I mean, this is the most ridiculous temptation ever thought out. Hey, I'll give you everything. By what, a sin-cursed world? Oh, there's so many theological things coming out of that. Satan is often Jesus. Jesus, the earthly kingdoms of the world. Revelation 19, friends, he's got it. And his response, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is preaching scripture to himself and Satan in this trial. And then verse 11, then the devil left him so when Jesus said, be gone, he is gone. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. <laughs> In the Greek, it's the diabolos. Slithers away. And then the angels come and are diakoneoing Jesus. The diabolos leaves and they come to diakoneo. It's interesting in the terminology. Friends, at this point of redemptive history, we live in a spiritual war zone. And we tend to forget that. We actually tend to think that this is a heaven zone. Or we want it to be a heavenly zone, but it's not. This is actually, in this time of redemptive history, we live in a spiritual war zone. And Satan loves it when we forget where we live. And that's why God says, Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Do you, listen, do you hear me on that? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the tool that the Spirit of God uses. Okay? Now listen, we don't need to go looking for another word from the Spirit of God. We've already got his sword right here. The complete, sufficient word of God that I figure if it's good enough for Jesus to use and good enough for the spirit of God to use, then I think it should probably be good enough for us. And when things go wrong, it's when we're surrounded in our own stupid, lacking the truth of the word of God and are yielding to it. We live in a war zone, crud, but we do. 
Well, we have the, the next section, which we're going to fly through. And by the way, all this was by intent. This last section we're going to fly through. Verse 13 to 25, the gospel enters public ministry. The dragon slayer goes out to proclaim and call. So here's the 10, 15,000 foot view after the temptation. Verse 13, Jesus locates himself in Capernaum. It's a strategic location. I don't know if you've been over Israel. Karen and I have been there, and I can already see the town with even the structure and the synagogue in Capernaum, the remains of that that is left. It's a strategic location. This whole area has large populations. Verse 16, uh, it talks about how those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned. Again, the Old Testament, but the truth, the light has come. And then verse 17 From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first preaching, proclaiming that we hear Jesus do. And and it's interesting. Look, look, on the other side of your page, in in chapter 3, verse 2, John is is preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a commonness here. There's something going on. Know this. There is a central word that comes around what the gospel is all about, and that word is repent. That word contains so much theology behind it, so much truth behind it. That word means that all have sinned, Romans 6.23, and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is broken before a holy God because of sin. And repent means to, first, you have to see that and you have to understand that. And, and to, the idea of repent is to own that, and, to, and not just intellectually only, but, but understand the depth of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you are, you, are, you are dead in your sins upon sins. It's just not like an oopsie. It's just not like, oh, you know what, yeah, no one's perfect. No, it is like depravity on depravity. That is at the very core of the reality of us before a holy God. And if we, if we downplay that, if we dumb that down, if we stupid that, there really is no need to repent. There's need to feel sorry. But repent is not just feeling sorry. Repent is seeing that. And repenting includes understanding what the Lord has done. And that's why we're going through Matthew to find out what he is going to do. But we know this, there is a solution to that problem. And it is in grabbing a hold of that solution and repenting, seeing that, seeing that, and repenting of that, and acknowledging, confessing it all, and turning, and going for there, more of that, 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 that. That's what repenting is. Repenting is not some light-duty little thing. Repenting is all about a core change of everything that I see and understand and what I do life about. It's not a religious moment. It's not a light religious feel. Oh, and God's people, especially in our own country with so much stuff and so much success, it's just causing us to, to, to be zombies after the stuff. And not grabbing a hold of the grandness and the greatness of who God is. And that he would save a loser like me. And he would save sinners like you. And completely pull us out of bound to hell with no hope. 
That's our God. And that's what he is preaching. It's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it gets even better. Bear with me. It gets even better because it's not... It's not just this declaration to see and to see and to repent. It is this reality that, look, look, look what happens next. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees two brothers, Simon and, uh, I was going to say Simon and Peter. Uh, <laughs> they're the same. Simon and Andrew, and he calls them. It is not just a declaration of repent, you stupid people. Stuck in stupid people. Say it that way. He gives them a call, come follow me. That is personal. It is not a declaration far off, just go, you, you, repent, repent, repent. But it's a repent, follow me. It's a come close to me, come with me, come alongside me, walk with me. And, and by the way, you don't even have to do anything. All you have to do is follow me and I will make you. I will be the one who will take care of moving you and making you into all that I want you to be. We have to stop trying so hard to impress the Lord. Just letting him know, man, you did make a good choice in choosing me. Depraved, stuck in stupid people who repent and follow. And don't you ever feel like you just must be a super annoyance to the Lord? We probably are at times. But he's so sweet. Verses 23 to 24, quickly. Three things Jesus is doing. I'm setting ourselves up for what's going to be happening in the coming chapters. Three things the text tells us. He teaches in the synagogues. That's very interesting. Understanding, again, I'm thinking of Capernaum in that very building. That what would happen is it's in the synagogue structure. It's, it's in these local, we'll kind of call them local churches, kind of for our context here. And these churches, these synagogues in these cities and around. And they would have people come in. And that would be a common place where you'd have discussions and interactions together. Uh, teachings and, and pushbacks and, and, and so forth. And so there's a Jesus comes and he's teaching in the synagogue. But also it tells us that he's essentially he's preaching, he's proclaiming. And it's also talking about that he's healing people. We'll get into that more as time goes on. Know this, friends. The creator of the world who came to be the savior of the world is not just here to only take care of some spiritual things, but he is going to make the whole thing new. Where there will be no more sickness, no more tears. Oh, thank God for that. And then verse 25, if you follow the movement, 
and great crowds are following. In verse 24, his fame spread throughout. Matthew chapter 1. There is one that is coming that comes from the line, the royal line of David, from the covenant line of Abraham. But it is not just a human in a royal line. There is one that came who is in a divine line as well. Because there would be no story if the God had not showed up and made the whole thing take place and happen. And and then that one in it all, uh, uh, he comes and there was one that was preparing the way for him and prepares the way, and then this one comes, and even though it was not a a fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to be baptized, it it was apparently, clearly, the Father's will, and so he's doing the Father's will in this, and with John, he's baptized, and and the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and the Father speaks out, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, as Matthew is recollecting and moving the reader along, and and then we come into this, we come into chapter 4, and it's like right after that, the Spirit sends him out to like go to battle, Man, the dragon slayer versus the dragon. And here they are, they have three, the, the, the dragon has three plays, and they're all surrounded in stupid. And Jesus knows that because Jesus, every time, no, 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 that's stupid. That's in there in the Greek, stupideo. And it's uh, and because it's written. What you say is not true. This is what is written. And then he says, get out of here. And he gets. And then in it, he begins to enter into public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in that, it's, he, hey, Simon, hey, Andrew, come, follow me. By the way, uh, just, we don't have time if you go, and it's not Matthew's interest on how this calls, but if you go and you take a look at the other gospels on how these call, it wasn't like Jesus said, hey, come, and they like, oh these zombies that are following. And by the way, Zebedee left in the boat. He was okay. He, he was okay. There's this whole idea, if you go and you really dig out with the other Gospels what's taking place in here, they had come to understand because of this, his fame and because of the great clouds, they had already heard him teaching. There had already been some interaction with him on this. And this is kind of the moment where Jesus is like, come follow me. And they were like, this is like golden opportunity of a lifetime. Are you kidding me? What else would we want to do? And so they go after and they're following him. How sweet it is that we have a Savior that not only tells us what we need to do, but comes alongside us and helps us, makes us what we, he wants us to be. And then the last part is, you get this scene as all this is moving, and you go, and great crowds are building. And I think the question, I'll say for me as the reader, take out all the chapter breaks, take out all the, par- or all the section headings, take all that and you read it all. And right at this point, I think as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you're like, okay, repent and follow me. Okay, but like, can you expand on that? Chapter five, six, and seven, yes, I can. And he does. Next Sunday, a little expanding to get an idea on what the gospel is and does next Sunday. The core of the gospel in one word, repent. The call of the gospel in two words, follow me. Know this, 
There is something to repent from, and there is someone to follow after. There is something to repent from, sin, and there is someone to follow after. And the change of that in one sermon, next Sunday, what it looks like. So Lord, thank you for taking us on this adventure, this adventure to help us understand you and see you and behold you and and adore you. God, I think at this time, Matthew is wanting us to be at a place to where we kind of are seeing some things, but also have some questions in the back of our mind. And so he continues to write, and we'll continue to go there in it. God, as we close our time here with really what's been a kind of for us as a church family, a Christmas song, may the truth of Emmanuel, of God with us, having come as our Savior and Deliverer, having come as our perfect representative, having entered in to our brokenness and into the war that is warring at this time in redemptive history. God, the one who came and entered in and took on our sin and our shame. Father, may we never forget Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you for being that kind of a God, that kind of a Godhead that is not far off and distant and gets a thrill out of crushing us in our stupidness. But you came and you entered in. Why would you do that? The stunning answer to that is because you are Emmanuel, God with us, and you love us in spite of all our stupid. You love us. Wow. You are much to be adored, that's for sure. In Christ's name. Amen.